is your key day. And this is nothing to lose but yourself. Good day to you wherever you may be. I hope you're having an amazing day, a positive one, a life-giving, and maybe even an insightful day. But wherever you are, I hope it's a good one for you. Once again, my name is Ricky Day, and welcome to the podcast, Nothing to Lose But Yourself, where we uh, try to make the world a little bit better place, one conversation at a time. As per normal, I want to remind you, if you're not doing it already, to follow us on social media. That's Nothing to Lose But Yourself on Instagram and on Twitter, as well as on Facebook. Of course, my name is Ricky Day, R-I-C-K-Y-D-A-Y, and you are invited and most certainly welcome to follow me on social media as well. Well, my guest today on the podcast is mixed media artist Deborah Roberts. I'm excited about this conversation. This is a dynamic sister, an amazing artist, and a wonderful human being. In our wide-ranging conversation, Deborah and I talk about her amazing work, which challenges the notion of ideal beauty and humanizes black children. Uh, we also talk about her childhood in East Austin, Texas, and how she takes dehumanizing tropes and images of black people and repurposes purposes of them as power symbols to inspire self-love and black and brown people around the globe and of course to make beautiful art that everyone can enjoy. This is a dynamic conversation with an amazing artist and black woman who's using her gifts to serve others and call attention to some of the most urgent issues of our day. So sit back, relax, grab that cup of coffee, that glass of wine, a glass of water, the herbal refreshment, whatever it is you want to do, do it. Get yourself set, get yourself ready, sit back and enjoy my conversation with artist Deborah Roberts. My guest on the uh, podcast today is Deborah Roberts. Deborah is a mixed media artist whose work challenges the notion of ideal beauty. Uh, her work has been exhibited internationally across the United States and Europe. Uh, Roberts is in the collections of the Whitney Museum of American Art here in New York, the Brooklyn Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, LACMA, that's L.A. County Museum of Art for those of you who don't know, uh, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, Virginia, the Blanton Museum of Art in Austin, Texas, among other institutions. Um, she was selected to participate in the Robert Rauschenberg Residency in 2000. 2019, and she is a recipient of the Anonymous Was a Woman grant in 2018, as well as the Pollock Krasner Foundation grant in 2016. Uh, she received her MFA from Syracuse University in New York, and she currently lives and works in Austin, Texas. I am so happy to welcome to the podcast the illustrious Miss Deborah Roberts. <laughs> hey, Deborah, how are Thank you? you. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. It really, really is. I, I love your work as I shared in our pre-call and I've been excited about the opportunity to speak to you. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be here to, with you today. And what a day to have you on the day. Yeah. I, I don't usually tell people this because they don't know when we're recording versus when the episode comes out. But we happen to be recording on the day that Kentanji Brown Jackson was confirmed as the first African-American female on the Supreme Court. What a blessing to have that happen today and have you as my guest. Right. That, that's a glorious thing. Yeah. I mean, all the little girls right now can look up to her and say, I can achieve this too. It's beautiful. It's just a beautiful day. 
Yeah, it, it really is. It really warms my, my spirit. And I avoided the, the hearings because I didn't want to see all the toxicity. And so I didn't allow myself to really get caught up in it. Um, but now, you know, well, the first time I really was able to feel it, um, I was, I'm in a show at Schomburg uh, uh, Research Library here in New York. And Sharice May is one of the artists in the group show with me. And she's a photographer who shot uh, pictures at the hearing of Judge, uh, Brown, Judge Jackson. And uh, that was the first time I started to get emotional about it but today it just really hit home like wow it really I know happened. I know it's so beautiful I mean I almost was gonna look at the vote but I just didn't want anything to happen not that I could jinx it but I just wanted to revel in the celebration mm-hmm. and so I just I, I just see everyone posting all these beautiful black women and men just so happy you know and this as unfortunate as she has to be the first black woman but hopefully just a uh, to open the door for many, many more down the line and in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And I'm just, again, I can't, I can't overstate it to be sitting here with you as we <laughs> hear about it. It's just, it, it's great. Um, I think it's always important for me to start these conversations, not assuming that the listeners know everything about the person. So why don't you unpack for us a little bit about who you are in your own words? Who is Deborah Roberts? I'm a very simple person. I'm really not very complicated, <laughs> but I try to make my work a little complicated. I am a collage-based artist who um, who uses different faces, found faces, to create a narrative about being Black in America, being Black in the world as a young woman. All the 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 triumphs and the you know adversities and tragedies that happen as you go into womanhood and how the world perceives you so that is the basis of my work um i i i was a visual artist who did work similar to norma rockwell um one day i saw the um ron artest fight on the um uh, on, on the news mm-hmm. and the next day how cnn showed it uh, nearly 200 times and i was thinking i'm not doing the type of work that's being broadcast out to the world and so i got on the journey to to change that and collage was the uh, path that i found that best expressed my 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 ideas about how people were viewing black women and black people and uh, so um, what I always tell you is there is a lot of honey in my work and there's a lot of medicine, too. Mm-hmm. Indeed, there is. And it is powerful work. It's beautiful work, but it's powerful work. And those who with an eye who want to see can look at the surface of it and see that there's a lot going on there. I mean, and right. it's impressive. I really, really congratulate you on the work and on your success. Um, I mean, it's so powerful that people are imitating it. I hear and I yes. see so. That's a little yeah. tragic, but uh, you know we're going to move past and we're going to work past that. You grew up in East Austin, Texas. Tell me a little bit about like what's it like growing up in East Austin, Texas? What was childhood like for you? Who, what formed uh, Deborah Roberts? I am a, one of eight children. Uh, East Austin, if you, if you know this, is a black part of town. Uh, when I was growing up, it was for black poor to middle class people who. Um, who lived in communities where there was a lot of teachers, there were uh, a lot of professional people, but not, not doctors and lawyers, but just kind of blue collar workers, people Mm -hmm. who moved the economy. And my father worked for the city of Austin and uh, provided for our family. Uh, We have four girls and four boys. So I'm number five and I was different. You know, I wanted, didn't want to be like my sisters. I wanted, you know, I was an artist type and, 
uh, third grade, I figured out that's what I wanted to do. And there was no stopping me at that point. So uh, being in the family with um, your only attention you really got was you, was you were sick. And, you know, <laughs> that's when you got the mother's love. But other, other than that, you know, get up and help with the household, you know, duties. So um, it just gave me a great work ethic and mm-hmm. um, come from a family of preachers, you know, lots of preachers. Yeah, we talked about that. I forgot in our um, pre-call, we talked about that. We're both people of faith and you come from a family of preachers. What was that like for you? You're the little, you're the fifth child. You're a little artist. You're being different. You don't really get attention unless you're sick or pretend to be sick. Yeah, pretending to be sick. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. What's it like with, you know, all those chores, all that responsibility? And I would imagine preacher parents are probably pretty tough on their kids. Is that a fair right. assessment? Well, luckily, my family, my 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 family wasn't preachers, but you know, we had preachers like uncles and aunts and things like that. Okay. But my my parents were very devoted, you know. And uh, when you got in trouble, you had to read the Bible. And uh, for me, that was the first, you know, visual uh, candy was because my family had a big family Bible with pictures of the Renaissance, you know, that you know God hand reaching to Adam, uh, creation, all these wonderful uh, pieces. And that's my love for art and shape and bodies, you know, stem from saying those. But you couldn't just go and open our family Bible. You had to be in trouble to get that Bible. <laughs> and uh, because you had to learn Bible verses. That's what, that was my mom's punishment after the, she didn't spare the rod, but she made you read the Bible too. <laughs> and um so I got a love of that. And um, I think we talked about one day I was just looking at it just to just see how to draw all the pictures. And I got in trouble for reading the Bible, even though I wasn't technically reading it. But uh, it, it was just a wonderful way to see art, beautiful art, because we, we didn't have access. My father didn't believe in art in that way. Mm, interesting. Wait, let me slow back that a little bit. What do you mean he didn't believe in it that way? He wasn't familiar or he just didn't see value in it? I or? think he wasn't educated in the art in the way that we are today. Uh, he thought it was uh, a hobby and a useless hobby at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't see, he thought that was plain. He didn't think that was anything serious. He definitely didn't think it would be career, anything you could build a career on. Yeah. Um, and, and he poked fun at it because he didn't understand it, of course. And uh, that's how we do sometimes as black people. I'm not, I'm not going to put this all on black people. No, that's how we do sometimes when we don't understand something uh, was different than what we know. Mm-hmm. We poke fun at it Absolutely. and, you know, to take the power away. Absolutely. And it's an American thing, too, in many ways. I mean, I know you lived in Paris for some time and I spent a great deal of time traveling in Europe. And there's a much deeper appreciation of the arts as not only something to to look at and to experience, but as a potential vocation uh, than there is here. You know, we come from this Puritan based society. So it's like work, 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 capitalism, capital, capitalism. That's all that matters. So arts aren't necessarily appreciated in the way uh, that they are in other places in the world. Um, So three, your third grade, you decided you wanted to be an artist that's a pretty young age it really kind of came out of you practicing and drawing at home and getting punished and looking at those pictures in the bible is that kind of the foundation of it for you right and it was that and it was also this idea of people wanted things drawn you know when I, i would you know draw my paper instead of doing my homework and uh, people would see and say, can you draw me a car? And I was like, yeah, I could, I could give me some paper. I do the car. So I started trading. I could do 
football players, uh, race cars. That was my number one thing because boys would love that. Uh, I could do, you know, try to draw portraits. You know, now looking back, they were horrible portraits, but I did them no <laughs> less. Uh, I got money. I mean, not, I never really had currency in the sense of money, but the currency was paper and those big red pencils I love to today. Um, you know, a lot of red arrow books and things like that. My family brought for a group of kids, so they never, we never got individual, um, tablets. We got, my mom would buy a a big stack of loose paper Mm -hmm. and give us each some paper like that. And so when I was able to trade for tablets and, you know, the, the big red chief tablets, you know, so those were really great. That's great. Um, you know, when I think about your work and the foundation of it, and I just think about the world now, right. And, and, and how people are moving through it and the, the difficulties that we're having. Um, I know for me in my own worldview, uh, I sort of work from this notion that uh, on some level, on one level, self is this performance, this, this self that we build from the raw materials provided to us by pop culture, our parents, our social groups and mass media and pop culture. Right. Um, but I also believe in a very real way that so many of the problems that we're experiencing are a result of this identity crisis that as humans right. that, we're, that we're feeling that we don't know who we are as authentic creation of God. We don't embrace and love ourselves. And so when you do that, you get filled with this emptiness, right? This void that you're trying to fill and you try to fill it with fame and followers and material things and money. Or if that doesn't work, then you try to make yourself feel better and elevate yourself by diminishing other people, which is where all the suppressive stuff comes from. I know in your artist statement, and even now you were talking about your early ideals of race and and beauty were shaped by, you know, what you saw in Renaissance artist paintings and the photographs and magazines. I'm so curious, like what kind of impact did this have on your view of self as, as a child and even as a young woman? I mean, you've got those ideals that you're seeing in those paintings, you're seeing those magazines i would imagine back then because we're around the same age that there weren't a whole lot of black people there how did that really impact how you started to view yourself well you look at this idea that that why we feel beautiful and we're lesser than Mm -hmm. Uh, you see these these images being you know broadcast all over television in the magazine and my mom was a, a, a housekeeper she would bring these vogue magazines home uh harper's bazaar all these you know things that you would see cosmetology to, you know, all these things would tell, you know, these were beautiful white women and you rarely ever saw black people in magazines until Ebony and Essence. Um, and yeah, I mean, Ebony and Jet came mm-hmm. out and then later on Essence, but you think this is what beauty is. I, I can draw white people very well because that's what I drew for the first 15 years of my life. And those were the things I thought, looked good and people wanted. Although I have very beautiful examples of of women who were very powerful in the church or who are very powerful in the world, but they didn't look like nothing like the people that people applauded and mm-hmm. people put forward. And so, you know, it just took me as an adult to understand that, you know, but as a kid, it's just, you know, I, I, you know, you, you dark skin, like I am, mm-hmm. um, you have, very natural hair. It doesn't have anything, doesn't have a wave in it whatsoever. It go it, it grows towards God mm-hmm. and you have to figure out how to manage it. And you never see that in the magazines. And so you do feel lesser. 
uh, because you didn't have good hair or you don't, you didn't, you're not light skinned. So you don't look white, you look black. And, and the only thing that they put forward at that time were National Geographic books and things like that. And, um, mm. you know, no one wanted to be that because it was very, you know, God, you don't even hate to use the word heathenness, but it wasn't anything that was looked upon. It was savagery, you know. Right. It, it wasn't even exotic in the way that we know exotic is today. So it was always something lesser. And I didn't want to be that, yeah. you know. And so it shaped me to that idea until I, I, I grew up to when I was 18 and started figuring out, you know, really that black is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And all is shaped in colors. And, and started moving that in my work more. Absolutely. It's so heinous that, you know, we're presented with that imagery and, and kids, young people, we were forced to try to find ourselves despite looking at all that stuff and being bombarded with that. And whether somebody says it overtly or not, that's what those images were saying to you, that you're lesser, that this is the ideal and you should aspire to this. And even when you know better, it takes a lot of work to undo that conditioning. Well, uh, yeah, Look at we we used to cheer Tarzan on. He would he would a white man, you know, swing it through the jungle, you know, destroying black people, you know, spearing them, having animals trample them, and we were for for Tarzan and not the black people, and that's just part of being brainwashed, you know. Yeah, same thing. My mom, oh my goodness, my mother loves to this day. She loves westerns. And when I was a little kid, you know, I'd crawl in the bed with her, sit on the sofa with her and watch Westerns and cheering for John Wayne and and against yeah. the Indians. And now that I'm an adult and I know better, I realize I was cheering for the genocidal maniacs right. that were really Absolutely. erasing a race of people from the planet, essentially. Right. It's right. it's really tragic. And all for the reasons of not really understanding and loving themselves, which makes it a double tragedy because they're harming right. people. And then the people doing the harm, they're hurting, too. They don't realize right. it. I know many people listening to this are probably thinking, brother, I ain't got time for you to be worried about them. But it's the truth. Everybody is, you know, in this pain and, and the pain is being acted out in these really hideous ways. I got a question for you. It's going to sound like an odd question to many, but I think you're going to understand this question. Deborah. When did you first realize that you were black? I didn't know that I was black until I was in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a difference. And I was bused to an all-white school. And that's when I was first, I first experienced the idea that it was something, uh, well, something that was perceived as something ugly. And, and, horrible and I, I just don't it's so many adjectives I can use at this time I didn't even understand it I didn't know why people didn't like me because I was black I mean my parents never talked to us about this I never knew that was going to happen everybody looked the same in my neighborhood I mean maybe with a, a difference of a few dollars but that's about it mm-hmm. someone got a new car in September someone got it in uh February you know but that was that was the difference but to be sit at a table and said why the many reasons you can't sit next to this white child and then to a point where they put you by the bathroom because yeah. you know so i sixth grade mm-hmm. when and can you remember you know paint a picture for me life before that moment and oh, life exactly. and life after that moment absolutely the life before that was great uh the teachers i had you know 
were in our community. They loved us. I was looking forward to my sixth grade, uh, sixth grade trip. We would always go to a wonderful place, you know, and I was in the fifth grade. Teachers, uh, man, they, they praised my art. Um, you know, I talked too much. That was, you know, I got in trouble for that. <laughs> but other than that, I was a great student. Um, after the sixth grade, I, sk- I skipped school a lot. I missed the bus. My parents were already gone to work. So if you miss the bus, you cannot. You cannot go to school. So I missed the bus a lot. I started wearing a coat because the ladies, the teacher talked about black sexuality and that we were oversexed. And my body was changing at that time. Um, I um, I don't know that I did art that year. Uh, I know I, I started back in the seventh grade when I had a Hispanic teacher and we they, we moved over to a school that was both black and brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tried to make me do all track and field. She signed me all up for the track and field. I was a chubby kid. You know who I was going to beat. I mean, I could beat you at McDonald's, <laughs> but I couldn't beat you at the end of that rope. You know, I couldn't climb no rope unless it was, uh, you know, some French fries at the top. So uh, <laughs> then I would definitely would beat you. Uh, but she would tie me up for things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, when I disappointed her because I just wasn't an athlete, she would, you know, uh, you know, grab me up and, you know, you know, belittle me for that stuff. Oh my goodness. I mean, you're supposed to be in a place where you're nurtured and you're being taught and you're being poured into, and, and this is what's being poured into you, this venom and this self-hate uh, from this person who really, at the end of the day, hates herself. And that's why she's got to right. do what she can to feel better by poisoning young black minds. That's really, really tragic. You know, I, I'm interested in though, when I think about it, um, you know, you started as a painter and you ultimately shifted to collage as kind of the dominant technique in your work, right? I'm very curious about this role of this exploration of identity and this journey that you went on as a young girl and then to a young woman and what role that kind of played in you understanding that maybe collage is a better way to express the things that you're feeling and that you want to explore inside. Were they related really in direct way that way? Not, not so much, a little bit, but not that much. Mm -hmm. What collage does is this, this idea that they see one person. You know, they don't even see the human figure, the face. They see the skin tone mm-hmm. first. And then then they 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 greet you based on that. Right. So it's it's really based on what white people experiences are and how they relate to you. And when I start seeing that was the most important thing, I started, you know, making these monstrous faces, but not too monstrous because I think that black people are beautiful. I start off, I always start off with the most innocent face and I build from that. Mm-hmm. And I try just even the studio today doing the monstrous face just really disgusts me. And because we're not that, but if that's what someone see you less than human, something that is, can be easily tossed away or enslaved yeah. or, 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 or votes and rights taken away from and not standing up for that, then, then I have to do that type of work. And I have to bring it to the forefront. Uh, one of the things I will say about my work is that it's palatable, that it leads you to this dialogue without screaming and wanting to shoot someone in the face, mm-hmm. um, which we feel all the time. Well, I can't say for everybody, but what I feel all the time. We have the thousands cuts, the t- tens of thousands of cuts that we exist every day on our body. In some way, we are cut by... Uh, 
just in New York just this weekend. I was went to a restaurant. Uh, you know, I had my Ferragamos on. I was looking at, you know, I was doing my thing. <laughs> and I was waiting uh, for my, my, my friend to come and join me. And they told me I had to sit, sit outside, you know. So when we were sit, when we were seated, yeah, guy next to me came in sitting after us, and and I kind of looked and I was like, I'm what if he's gonna have a a companion? And then the guy comes up later and said, Sorry, I'm late. I you know missed a train or something. And mm-hmm. I, and I was like, There you go, another cut on my face. Yeah. You know that this white guy could go and sit down in a nice warm space, but I had to sit on a bench near the door to wait for my party, to the whole party gets here. So those little cuts to things like that, that we have to just quit every day. Some of them heal very easily because we're used to it. Some of them just scab over and some never heal. And I think that doing collage for me and the cutting and the line cutting, the shaping of the faces, the things like that, all talk to that thousands of cuts that we have to deal with. Absolutely. That's that's brilliantly shared, Deborah. I mean, I've never thought about it that way, but that's absolutely the case. And you never know, you know, no matter how wonderful, how intelligent, how educated, how smart, how beautiful, how whatever we are, we're all walking with those cuts. And you never know when it's going to be one cut too many and somebody's going to get slapped. Um, you just, absolutely, and we're not going to go there, but it's, right. it's, it's real. Right. And I think that's why so many black people, although we may not uh, encourage or like the violence, embraced it. Cause we understood where it came from. You know what? That was right. just the one. And quite often it's easier to take it out on each other than it is the other, because right. we know there's probably less likely, uh, we're going to have consequences for taking it yeah, out on yeah. retribution on each other. Right. It, it's really tragic on so, so many levels, you know, and you also, you focus on children in your work a lot, which I think is profound and very powerful. Uh, and, uh, even recently you added black boys to your work because right. it was exclusively girls for a while. Why boys? Why now? And in general, why children? Well, it's so important that the uh, adultification of young black children is so prevalent mm-hmm. that the things that they do to black children is that they can make life decisions, that they have a historical um, history to, to to gain from, to, to lean into. They don't. They're children. Yeah. You know, they're naive. They don't understand. They're scared. But people treat them as an adult and that they, they're capable of having adult conversation. And, and, and when I started my work uh, back in 2011, um, nobody was talking about kids. We talked about women and idea of women and black women, how we get there. But what about being a, a child and having a name that is not considered, you know, of, of it's considered a black sounding name. Yeah. How do you, how do you enter when people make fun of that and teachers and other people, how do you, if you're different, if you're fat, if you're skinny, if you're dark, you're light, if uh, you don't fit in into this mold of Western ideal of beauty, how do, how do you move forward? And so I started to do my scholarship based on that. And it was so very important because the glove to fight yourself as a human being for black girls, they come on by age eight. You're already, you, you know, you're already fighting who you are. You can't talk loud because now you're destructive. Mm-hmm. You can't um, you can't wear a certain clothes or just just over sexualized. Um, you can't, you know, do anything that normal little girls do without a negative stereotype being plastered on your body. And 
and and I wanted to bring light to that. And um, and with little boys, little boys are destroyed by the third grade. Yeah. If you're out, if you're a little boy and you're trying to figure out who you are, you're testing the boundaries and the limits of of society, and and you maybe had a bad day, and and if you you pout or you don't want to do something, then you consider a problem child. You need to go, and this is what they do: they put them in special ed when they're not special ed students. That goes with you the rest of your time in school. And and then when you tr- you talk down to and things like that, well, yeah, because the thing is, and that we all have to recognize, is that anger, it is at the surface. It just, we, we carry that with us. That's why it's so easy to access. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to. I know I don't, but I can get there, and I can get there quick. Mm-hmm. And And I have to, and I will defend people based on, you know, if you're mistreating a child, I'm right there. So, so I understand it, but we need better teaching, teachers who understand this and not label kids, you know, already destroy them in the third grade. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And, and what you talked about is so insidious and unfortunately all too common. And I, I, that's why I think, first of all, I think we need national therapy because everybody's oh, in need do. of therapy. We everybody do. needs to unpack how they feel about themselves and why. Right. So they don't take that baggage that they're carrying about their lack of love for self and place that onto the bodies of little black kids or grown black women or grown black men or anybody else other than themselves. Work that stuff out in your own time. Work that stuff out in your own mind, your own spirit, your own home. And, you know, and do that. And let's let's build a world that we all want to inhabit and live in. Exactly. And, and not Absolutely. push our pain off on others. Um, you know, the issue of agency, too, is really important in your, your work. And I don't want to assume that everybody understands the use of the word in this setting. So, you know, if you could just unpack um, for listeners what it is and why it's so important to you and in your work, because it's a really important ingredient in your work. Right. Well, you know, Kurt Schwitter was a German artist who used collage and cartoony as a way to gain power and agency in the world. He wanted his voice and the voice of his 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 people to 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 resonate in the world and to, and to be there. The reason why doing little black girls and, and with power stances, it gives it, it stands up. It's like we're standing in the cracks of society already and how we can move out of that into the light whether it's talking about our beauty, whether it's talking about, you know, our bodies and gaining agency through doing collage is very important. So it's a time honored uh, tradition and it's not always been positive. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look back at the stereotypical imagery of the Piccaninny or the uncle, uncle Ben and the aunt your mama, those were symbols and, and trope set aside to humiliate black people mm-hmm. to 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 put them in their place and to take some of that stuff and shake it off and put it clean it up and put it into my my work as a power symbol an act of power of acting moving forward you have to see me because i'm staring you in the face that was a time black people couldn't look white people in the face yeah. and these these kids are directly staring you in the face they're asking for you see their their humanity that gives them agency that gives them um life and so that's that's why it's so important 
Yeah, that, I, it's powerful. And I, I just wanted to hear you speak to it uh, in your own words, because I see it in the work. I, I saw it in the work. And obviously, as I did the research, I started to understand that you were very deliberate and intentional about it, which is amazing. Um, and, you know, othering, which you talked about and referred to other, and we all are all familiar with it. And we all engage in it, by the way, because when we talk about them, we're othering them. Um, right. you know, we under, we're othering from a defensive space, but at the end of the day, we're still doing it too. And, and it's destructive for all of us. And, you know, having people in fringe upon your agency and othering you is a violent in many ways and very much a traumatic event. And so everybody's walking around wounded. You know, that's one of the things that I think right. is self central is that everyone's walking around wounded, but art like yours speaks to it. It calls it to the surface. It makes people at least explore and examine it. And hopefully it starts to lead on some level to healing. And I think artists have a, a, a potentially have a role in that and have the ability to do that. But then sometimes I wonder if that's putting too much pressure on art and artists to do that what wish you where do you net out on that what's your feeling about artists and our ability to you know help people heal or to at least call the attention to the fact that we need to heal and we need to grow right well we have to watch and see and make sure that people are not um enjoying that trauma mm-hmm. you know there's a whole bunch of trauma that we're trying to we're trying to bring out of our body into the world just to get it out of us and and people are eating it up and we have to wonder, um, I can't remember, it must have been Dave Chappelle who talked about, he was saying a lot of black jokes. And then he realized that the people were laughing too hard. They wasn't laughing at it. It was, it was a difference in the way that that laughter was now coming. And that's why I feel sometimes with black art right now, the laughter is different. Mm-hmm. It's that this consumption of this this tragedy and what we're trying to feel. And then then you try to hold it back. I try to cloak it a little bit in my work. I don't want to give put it all out. You would never see any of the children in my work crying. Mm-hmm. I'm, ne- I'm not going to give you that. You, yeah. you don't deserve that. But what you do deserve is to understand my power, my pain and how you can make it better. And so, so it's important, you know, as artists to, you know, give a little, give enough, but not all of it, you know? Yeah, not all of it. You're, you're right about that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And then also, I think, you know, I want people, we want people to see our pain a little bit and understand that they're in some ways a root cause of it. But also I think what's really important is so many of us, um, exist in this illusion of separateness, right? That it's us, right. that it's them, that it's your pain, that I'm the victim and you're the uh, perpetrator. And those things are true on some level. But what people don't understand, at least from where I sit, is that we're all connected, right? And when you're right. harming us, when you're taking my agency, you're actually doing damage to yourself in the process. Right. You can't right. create a world where you're telling me that I'm nothing unless I have these things, Keep from me the ability to earn a living to make those things that you told me I'm nothing without and then feel safe in your home. Where do you think crime's going to come from when you've set you've set this up? This is your system. This is your process. This is your way of thinking, being and doing. I'm just act playing my role in it. You just didn't think through the fact that you're connected to this and it all comes back uh, to, to bite you as well. And I think one of the most insidious ways it does it, Deborah, is when you're oppressed or you're focused on the fear of the people that you've oppressed lashing out at you, who has time to dream? Right. 
And dreaming is an important part of of living. Dreaming is an important part of making change. And, Mm -hmm. you know, everything exists. You you look around that room you're in right now, the room I'm in, nothing exists here that wasn't a dream, wasn't a thought in somebody's mind first. But if you're robbing people of the time and the space to dream, then you're robbing them and yourselves of the potential fruit of their dreams. That little black kid that you're torturing might be the one that cures cancer. Um, Right. I just it's insidious and I'm just how important has dreaming been for you and your life and, and in your work and in your process uh, today even just as existing as a black woman how important is dreaming to you dreaming is very important I tell people I'm here this is the house that art built you know I only dreamed about it. I was so afraid that I would end up homeless you know that was my biggest fear um but I would get that little year-end announcement from um I guess it's the IRS or someone that says, this is how much you will make in your, when you're a senior citizen. Mine was $250. I was like, man, I'm going to have to work till I just one day. <laughs> it's the last day, you know, robot kill me. And, and, and that would be it. Um, I, this, this wouldn't be possible without my dreams. My, the, the dreams of a third grader. The idea of having an amazing teacher in high school for a whole four years that pushed me, that loved me, that that showed me the way, that showed me that I had to learn how to not only do painting, but uh, cartooning, airbrushing, watercolor. She taught me everything, a full package. She wanted me to be a full pack. I had to do calligraphy. I had to learn everything, things that I didn't want to do. And now I see them as part of my practice. And, you know, just to tell in on that conversation you said before is that that and James Baldwin said this, white people talk to civilized black people when they wasn't civilized themselves. And that feeds into this whole idea of we taking talking about taking the life from someone. Mm-hmm. You, you literally take the life from a change, alter their life based on your perceived notions of who you think they are. And uh, and take away their dreams. But, you know, you hope that kids, that dream is so embedded in their spirit, that it's God given, that it's going to nurture itself way out of that, you mm-hmm. know, as their body is they mature. But it doesn't always happen. And it depends on when people take your life, you know, yeah. and we, that's why we have to protect us so often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what do you offer? I mean, we all have challenges. We've all had periods where it's difficult to dream or we may have not believed in ourselves. I mean, for you, uh, so much of the success has come later in your career. You know, were there ever times that it was difficult for you to dream, uh, to imagine that this was going to come true, or were you fully committed to the whole time and you're just that special person that didn't have to, you know, go through that? And if so, no. you know, okay. I, and I thought not, because I don't think anybody is. But no, you know, no, no. What's your, what's your advice to people that, that, you know, that worked for you and pushing through those moments, right? You know, holding well, on to that dream. Mm-hmm. One of the things when I had really down times when George, the first, wait, the second George Bush became president, um, I really had to, every day I did a journal, uh, uh, a really positive quote, and and until um, I started feeling good and didn't have to do that. Then I started, I get up in the morning, I said, this is a day that God has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that helped a lot. Uh, and also I had go girl goals, you know, mm. I had the ultimate goal of uh, being collected at the Museum of Modern Art, but I had smaller goals to help me get there. So when I achieved those goals, you know, because some people have lofty goals, they're so high, 
and you're tossing into a river with sand and you cannot reach that. But if you have, if you start building little sand blocks, building and building and building, it it helps. So one of one of the things when I achieve something, I said, "You go, girl. You go. Look at you." And then when I go two times above what I thought I was going to do, you know, I was getting happy. I will put on. I will survive. I would had. I had music, different types of things. It just kept me motivated and going because it was some very lean times mm-hmm. and. Um, um, at one point, especially when I changed the work, um, that's what made me go back to school to, to, to get a little bit more. That's when I realized the missing ingredient to the pie. You know, you can make apple pie all day, but you put, you forgot, you forget the most important thing. It's never going to taste right. right. It's, it's always going to be something different about it. And I found that ingredient and it was great. Well, we are grateful for it. You know, on dreams, I got this and I got to give credit, uh, Dr. Sean Jenright, I got this from, but on dreams, I want to ask you a question. He, he poses this question to some of his students. I think it's brilliant. If you had a magic napkin and three things you could write on that magic napkin and they would come true in 10 years, what would they be, Deborah? Now? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I mean, on reason it's hard for me to say that is because all the things that I prayed for, I received uh, and, and ways that there was been so abundant. Um, if I had to write on the napkin in 10 years, I would want good health, mm-hmm. uh, good memory, good body health, you know, all of that mental, everything. Um, second thing is um, that you know, my family was safe, that, um, you know, everybody was still here, the ones that we would hope to be here. Um, it's, 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 it's so weird because it's so hard. I mean, when 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 God just delivers you, smiles on you, it's really hard to say I want anything more than that. Yeah. Um, I think if you would have asked me this even five or six years ago, the list probably would have been 23 instead of three, mm-hmm. but he heard me and I'm a witness of that. I mean, my whole life is a witness of that. So I don't have a third day. I, no. I mean, that's the most beautiful answer I've received so far. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I'm not gassing you. I mean, that's the truth. The fact that you are so blessed and so aware and so grateful for the blessings that you can't even think of three things that you would wish for. I mean, that in and of itself is a blessing, not only to you, but to everybody who's going to hear this, because people know that dreams can and do and will come true. And that gratitude in God's time and that gratitude is what fuels that process and what makes the process sweeter at the end. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, Speaking of which, I mean, do you recall the emotions you felt the first time you sold a piece of art? The very first time, mm-hmm. uh, the very first time I remember it was for five dollars, and I was so happy. I was happy. Uh, I, ha- I had to been uh, no, excuse me, twenty five dollars. I had to been seventeen years old. Mm-hmm. The guy at the bank wanted to buy. Um, my, my mom worked at the bank um, as housekeeper, a cleaner, and the guy uh, wanted to buy one of my. She told me he was supporting me. He gave me twenty five dollars. That was the best $25 I ever had. I still remember it. And um, 
dad, I brought junk food, I think. But uh, it was so great. I, I mean, it was wonderful. I think I brought some headphones. You know, I can't remember. It was like real money. And I kind of knew I could do this. You know, I had mm-hmm. no idea, no example. But I just knew this is what was for me. And I got money for it. So it was great. That's beautiful. Would you consider yourself a, a hopeful person, Deborah? And if so, where, oh, does yes, that hope, most definitely. where does that hope come from? Is that your faith or where does that come from? I think, I think partly faith, part, you know, my mom. My mom was, wasn't perfect, of course. No one is. But when she died, we all felt good. I mean, good in, this, I mean, good in the sense that we know she went to heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are some people you like, mm, I don't know. Or maybe, you know, they just a little shaky, you know. Uh, <laughs> go, it could go this way, it could go that way. We knew it. We knew it because of her spirit and her. So, so I get, I get that hope from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I, I in the world, I entered the world with that type of hope. I also entered the world with my father's anger, and they, they are always at battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that comes from them, and that comes from the early, you know, relationship with God. That we all have to be saved. We all have to profess our love and. For Christ, very early, um, you know, we didn't cuss. I didn't start cussing. <laughs> you didn't cuss words. Tile twenty five. Now I can really use them. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of hoping I get a couple during this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to drop a few, but uh, try to be good. Try to be good. Ah, you have to be anything other than who you are. Uh, you know, I I love, uh, and I admit that I'm late to the party, but I love the late uh, Bell Hooks and. Uh, in her book, All About Love, she shares this definition of love from M. Scott Peck's uh, The Road Less Traveled, uh, uh-huh. which also echoes the work of uh, this uh, philosopher and uh, um, um, psychologist Eric Fromm. And it defines love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. It continues right. that love is, as love does, love is both an intention and an action. And so mm-hmm. my question to you is, do you buy into that definition of love? And if so, do you feel like you've experienced that kind of love in your life and that you are able to give that kind of love to others, whether it's personally or through your work or how do you, how do you react to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. All of it. I'm all in for that because I do. I think I am right now living the blessings that my grandma Pray for me. Mm-hmm. Pray for our family. Pray for the strength of our family. I feel like it was is an intentional love. I don't think sometimes when I'm um, most distressed, I call a friend who is really God fearing, and like God, I'm a prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I said, well, maybe I'm not righteous enough, and I assume that this person is. When when God said to come in my name, I am present, so I need him here, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm about to, you know, go crazy. I think it is intentional. I think that there are things that you can do to further that love, you know. I, I you know, I don't know. You know, this is very hard for me because I, I there's a constant battle between trying to be a good person and also not let that goodness become a weakness, mm-hmm. you know? So you have to kind of balance in it, you know? So 
I, I'm still, no matter what, is going to reach out to the world with an open hand. I'm going to do that, yeah. not a closed fist. And hopefully, when I pull it back in, I'll have most of my fingers. <laughs> uh, I know that I will. <laughs> Might just be a knob, you know, a little knob there. But uh, I'm still going to do that, you know, because I do think it's in here too much. No, it really is. And none of us leave this place unscathed. So you might as well right, get a, a wound or two trying to make a difference as opposed to just sitting here. Um, right. Yeah, you know, so many of us who have gone through so much pain and are on the wrong side of oppression uh, find it difficult to, to listen to Martin Luther King or Jesus, for that matter, and talk about loving your enemy as, you know, and loving your neighbor and such. But if you buy in on any level to, you know, things I shared earlier that, you know, there's this identity crisis going on and share that definition of what love is, then you start to you start to get your arms around the fact that if people are harming you and setting up these systems because they don't love themselves, they don't understand who they are as a creation of a God, that they don't understand their space and our place in this universe, and that's where the darkness comes from. And you subscribe to the definition of love that I just shared, that it is extending yourself for the purpose of nurturing your own and another's spiritual growth. Well, if you're nurturing their spiritual growth and they start to get a clue about who they are, it removes the temptation and the need for them to be the things that they've been being that have been harming you. And if you can do that work on yourself simultaneously, every little bit, every little conversation can help to change the world just a little bit. Every collage, every conversation like this, we just do our part. All you do is tend to the garden that you've been um, you know, assigned to tend. Do the work there. And you'll, you'll make the difference that you're supposed to make by being who you're supposed to be. And I just wanted to share that because I think that that's what you've been. You've been and you continue to be a light. You're doing the work. You're tending to the garden that you've been, you know, assigned to tend. You're being who you were created to be, using your gifts to share with and to serve us. And we really, I, I appreciate it. And I want to speak for a bunch of other people I know who really love you and your work and, and feel the same way. What is next for you? Where can people find you online? What's the next exhibit? What's what's coming next? Uh, what's coming next? Two things. Um, I'm getting ready for my show in London, uh, Stephen Freeman Gallery that opens June 8th. Um, uh, did a wonderful article with our friend uh, at Essence, and that's coming out May June issue. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm out here. I get to take uh, after this work goes um, off to London. I get to take the rest of the year off, and that's that's wonderful. Uh, you know, I'll make it to June. Six months on, six months off. I have a show in fall at at the McNay with Benny Andrews estate. So me and Benny is going to be in a conversation called true believers. Um, so for right now, I'm just one foot in front of the other, you know? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that six months on six months off. Cause you know, that's time when you get to play. And I think people also right. forget the role of play in doing good work. You got to take some time and you got to play. You got to feed your soul. You got to relax your body and your mind. You got to play and great ideas come from playing. That's right. Just be still, just be still still. and not thinking it is all plugged in. Believe me. I know that I I tell people all the time. I took a boat to Alaska to figure out, you know, (laughs) you know what I want to do next. And, you know, seven days too long, but uh, (laughs) at the end of it, uh, your ideas came and it was great, but yeah. Alaska, I'm going to Cabo this time. 
<laughs> yeah, that, see how it works out. Alaska sounds beautiful and probably sounds like a good idea on paper, but yeah, I can imagine that's a shorter rather than longer trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Deborah Roberts, I am so grateful that you joined me today and I was grateful again for your work and thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you online? Because I know people want to see your work. Well, hopefully not to steal it. Um, where people want to see you online and, and follow you. Where can they find you at? Well, I'm on Instagram, uh, rdebra191. Um, I'm, uh, I have a website, uh, deborahrobertsart.com. Um, you know, just Google me. Uh, something's going to pop up. Just, you know, you can find me that way. Uh, currently have a new catalog that's floating around here, several different locations you can purchase. Um, I'm just, you know, just going to continue to do my thing and uh, reach out. If I can help, I will. Well, amazing sister, amazing artist, amazing human being. And I love the work and I got to get one of those catalogs So tell me where I can buy one because I definitely want to get one. And by the way, you guys, I'm going to put her uh, links in the show notes and her name is spelled Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H Roberts. Deborah Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate everything. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Ricky. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it as well. All right. You be safe. All right. All right. Well, thank you. The amazing Deborah Roberts. You know, black girl magic is a popular phrase and it's a phrase I'm not a fan of. Why am I not a fan? It's because for me, referring to black women as magical robs them of their humanity. The fact of the matter is that black women exist in a world that on an average day tries to ignore them and on the worst day throws everything it can at them to destroy them. The successes and the spirit of strength that exists in black women isn't magic, it's humanity. It's an alchemy of sorts. It is a determination to walk proudly in their humanity, to enjoy the fruits of their labor, and to love and be loved. Deborah Roberts, in many ways, is an alchemist. She repurposes the negative imagery and tropes of African Americans into power symbols meant to inspire us all. Deborah's work is an example of the ever present opportunities for each of us to take the lemons that life serves us and to use them to make lemonade. Life is a journey that has many ups and downs, but each experience, positive and negative, holds within it the seeds for a new beginning the start of a new vision, the gateway to a new way of living. Deborah takes her faith, her anger, her creativity, her disappointments, her love, and her humanity and uses them to create amazing works of art that are at once beautiful, thought-provoking, and inspiring. Deborah Roberts is an example to us all of the power of being yourself, of taking your gifts using them to create magic where none existed and to lean into her own humanity in an effort to awaken humanity in each of us. I'm grateful for Deborah Roberts as an artist and a human being, and I'm grateful for the conversation. I hope she woke something up in you and that you can take your gifts and lean further into your humanity and inspire the rest of us to see the humanity in each other and to lean in our collective humanity and make this world a little bit better place. One conversation, one act, one gesture of love at a time.
Well, you guys, that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Once again, I want to thank Deborah Roberts for joining us. And I hope you will continue to join us each and every week as we have these amazing conversations with amazing people who are living their lives authentically, who are doing the best they can to be the best they can and to make this world a little bit better places, a better place. Once again, my name is Ricky Day. And uh, if you are following uh, me on social media already, great. If not, please follow me ricky day r-i-c-k-y-d-a-y on instagram and on twitter and of course the podcast feed is nothing to lose but yourself on instagram and on twitter nothing to lose but yourself can be found wherever you listen to your podcast so spread the word share this with your family and with your friends i have some amazing guests coming up for the next few weeks including other visual artists faith leaders and some celebrities that you don't want to miss so follow us today subscribe to the feed so you don't miss an episode once again My name is Ricky Day. You are listening to Nothing to Lose But Yourself. I hope you have an amazing day, an amazing week, an amazing year, and an amazing life. And remember, if we lean into our own humanity, we can see the humanity in others. And if we engage each other as human beings with love, we can indeed change this world one conversation at a time. Have a great week. I love you.